0: We are right now moving to the back end of a series which has been titled Desire, and we've been exploring just what it means to be human under God and how we are hardwired as people in the way that we are created for affections, for desires, as creatures of desire, how following Jesus involves a change of desire, how how sin is the corruption of desire, how the process of change is the reordering of of desire. So we've been in that theme for a while, and today we're going to look at how we respond when it seems we are empty of desire. And so you can join me in opening up to Psalm 63, a Psalm of David, and we're going to read that entire psalm together. And by the way, you know one of my goals has been to just try to get good resources into your hands by recommending good resources. And for this message, I don't think I can improve upon the work of John Piper. John Piper wrote a book called When I Don't Desire God, and I'm always recommending books to you. So this morning I want to recommend a teaching series that's on YouTube. So if you go to YouTube and you type in When I Don't Desire God, there's a three-part series by John Piper that you can watch, and you will find that not only does he say it way better than I can say it, but he does it in a shorter period of time as well. So I commend that to you. The title of this morning's message is, Lord, I'm Empty. Psalm 63, verse 1. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. for the mouths of liars will be stopped. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you today wanting to learn from your word, wanting to peer into this psalm, wanting to be transformed all the way down to the level of our desires, wanting to know what it means for us when we are empty. We pray that you would meet us. We pray that you would grant illumination through the reading and proclamation of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When was the last time you felt hollow, dry, empty? You know, like like all the... All the spiritual life had been flushed from your soul. Maybe that's where you are right now. Or maybe that's a time that you can remember, a vivid time that's stapled in your mind and has defined you in some significant way. If you can call that to mind, then you can probably identify with where David is when he writes this psalm. This is a hymn that was composed by David during a time of great duress, where his heart seemed so stunned he could barely even find a pulse. In the face of some serious treachery and under the threat of assassination, David was fleeing for his life. Now, there's some debate here over whether this was during the pursuit of Saul, which would have been before he was king, or during the pursuit of Absalom, which was after he was king. I think it was probably during the sedition of Absalom, which is why in verse 11 he says, but the king shall rejoice in God. That's a self-reference for him saying, I will rejoice as king in the future. Also, Spurgeon believed that that it was while he was king, and I find it's always wise to agree with Spurgeon when it comes to an interpretation. And this is necessary to resolve because it establishes certain facts about the story. For instance, fact, David was driven out of his kingdom by the betrayal of his son. Fact, Absalom had stolen the heart of the people through his treachery, and then he declared himself to be king. Fact, the son was trying to kill the father. Fact, David's heart was set adrift. He was running for his life. He was cut off. He was feeling hollow. He was empty. In fact, in 2 Samuel chapter 15, it says that David's entourage, quote, passed through the Kidron Valley and moved on toward the desert. That's where he wrote this psalm. And it is, it's in that, that barren land that David's desire before God and for God plummets. And he feels lost and weak and dry and spiritually empty as if his tank is on E. And by the way, there are a few blows that crush the soul like the betrayal of one's child. It drains the desire for life until each day becomes a kind of funeral where you mourn the death of what should be and that's where david is right now in fact the the arrival in the in the desert seems to actually mirror the state of his soul his soul has been scraped dry he he's empty i mean look at the way he expresses himself before god in chapter In chapter 63, verse 1, he just says, My soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. And it's in this, this hour of darkness that David composes this song, a song that actually embodies how he will respond when he experiences emptiness before God. And as we study this together, we're going to discover that there is one overarching theme that seems to emerge. And I want to summarize it this way and get you thinking about it, and then I'm going to explain it. So this is how I would summarize it. This is the overarching theme, that empty is what empty does. Empty is as empty does. Now, you hear a phrase like that, and it's going to strike you in one of two ways. The first way is to just say, huh? You know, why are you up there once again babbling nonsense, Dave? I get that. I understand that. But there's a second way that you can think about that, and that's probably from a quote from Forrest Gump, where Forrest's Gump mom had said to him, for, once again, Forrest Gump, he, he felt stupid. He felt he was different. He was convinced he was stupid. And so his mother says to Forrest one day, she says, Forrest, Stupid is as stupid does, meaning that intelligence is found in actions, not labels. That it's revealed in what we do, not in how we feel about ourselves. And so empty is as empty does means that desire is reclaimed by action, not feelings. Desire is reclaimed by action, not feelings. It is restored by what we do, not how we feel. I'll just hold that for a second and push it off to the side, and let's look at what, what David did so that we can discover also what we should do when we find ourselves in this position of being empty. What should we do when we feel empty? Three points. Here's the first point. Go up. Go up. Now, once again, David is in the desert of Judah. He's being hunted by his son, Absalom. He is weary and famished. He's feeling desperate. He's feeling unsatisfied, thirsty, hungry, empty. What's his first step? David bears his heart to God. He says, oh, God, you are my God. David just begins by reasserting God's role in his life. You know, sometimes you just got to go. Sometimes things are so bad. Sometimes you're so dry. You just got to go all the way back to the beginning. You got to go back to kindergarten. You got to go back to square one and say to yourself, okay, let me just get it straight. Let me remember where this whole thing started. Oh, yes, I remember. God, you're my God. You are my God. John Calvin says of this verse, quote, David does more than simply pray. He sets the Lord before him as God. I love that. He sets the Lord before him. The Lord's over here in his mind. He takes the Lord, sets him before him in his mind, sets him before him in his heart, sets him before him in his affections. He says, I know who owns me. I know who started this entire project years back. I know the one I follow. Empty may be my feeling towards God, but empty is not God's feeling about me. See, for the Christian, God has fixed a new reality for us because of the cross, one that exists apart from our feelings. Oh, is this important? One that exists apart from our feelings, apart from our circumstances, apart from what happened to you this weekend, apart from what you experienced this past week, apart from all of that. It is a reality that says that you are loved by God. You have been adopted into the family. You have been filled with the Holy Spirit through regeneration. And that never changes. Your emotions about it may change. Your feelings towards God may change. You move into an unexpected trial, and that changes how we think. That changes how we view God. But the reality of how God views us never changes. So David says, I feel empty. But you know what, God? You are my God. Calvin says, I set the Lord before me. So there's a sense where David begins by making God the answer to empty. In David's mind, I'm empty, God, you're the answer. When our desires are empty for God, we make God the answer. And that's really important. It might seem simple, but it's really important because we're always tempted to fix other things as the answer to empty. Remember, what we've learned in this series, that we are creatures of desire. We are worshipers. We tend to attach our affections to things. And nowhere is that more prominent than when we begin to get squeezed when we begin to experience problems, when the reality of God, the feelings that we can tend to have towards God and about God are no longer there. And then all of a sudden we, we find ourselves saying, oh, I don't feel God. I'm not experiencing God. I feel empty. Oh, Job, you are my God. Oh, friends, you are my God. It can even be good things. Oh, church, you are my God. See, David avoids all of that. David says, God you are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. My body longs for you. Listen to the language that he's bringing into play there. It's, it's the absence of desire, but the, the desire for desire. It's the search for desire. Kidner says, David's whole being is restless and he is unsatisfied without God. See, David knew something that we often miss, and that is lost desires can only be found in God. We'll look in other places. We'll assert other things as God. We'll move back to Egypt sometimes, back to what we came out of in order to recapture what we got outside of Egypt. But David doesn't do that. He says, oh, God, you are my God. In other words, David goes up. See, there's a sense where David though he's in the desert, though he's suffering the effects of betrayal and even the effects of his own sin, David knows that ultimately God put him in the desert. David seems to recognize that his present place is not an Absalom thing, it's a God thing. His present place is a God thing. See, part of what we're doing when we cry out to God in the desert the way that David does is that we rightly locate him in our life as sovereign and in control. By David going up to God immediately, he's saying, no, God, I realize it's a mess. I know there's all kind of earthly causes that delivered me to this place, but God, you are my God. Now, maybe it seems to you like we shouldn't be talking to God this way. But I want to suggest to you that it really does take faith to be in the middle of a desert when you are empty, having been betrayed by your family, having no friends or family around you, and turning to God and beginning to engage God. Not engaging Absalom. I mean, that would be my temptation. Let me go on a hunt for Absalom. Let me make Absalom the issue here. Let me act like Absalom is really God. Oh, Absalom, I'm coming after you. But he doesn't do that. And this may be very relevant for you right now. Because you are in a season where you feel hunted. Or you feel chased. Or harassed. Or betrayed. Or or, or empty. And, And you're blaming Absalom as if there's no God. You're not going up to God. You are my God. You're going out to the events. Out to the circumstances. Out to those things that do have cause. But you're not going back to the ultimate God. See, David seemed to resolve something, and that is that God's not acting here randomly. God's not acting here punitively that God has a plan beyond the desert for me. There, there was something that he laid a hold of where he realized that the desert wasn't the ending place. It was just something that he was moving through in this season of his life. And that, that's something I think that is really important as we go into these experiences of feeling empty. You know, when I was in college... My brother and I had an idea that seemed absolutely inspired in the moment, and that was to throw everything we owned into his van and to drive to San Diego from Pittsburgh by way of Houston. He had a friend in Houston, so we went down. We spent New Year's Eve with his friend, and then we drove out from there and driving from Houston out to San Diego, which is where we wanted to end up because the Steelers were playing San Diego in something or another we, we were driving across the desert, and through Texas, it took 27 days, 110 degrees, no air conditioning, no air conditioning in his van, no air conditioning in any of the buildings we stopped in along the way. It just went on for hours and hours, and I remember being dry. And, and spent. But the only way to get to San Diego was to go through the desert. And, and, and here's what I remembered. After going through the desert and arriving at San Diego, which is, if you've ever been to San Diego, I mean, there's like the Garden of Eden, and then there's San Diego. It's just shy of that. It's temperature same all year round. It's just this beautiful... I remember arriving at San Diego and the experience of having gone through the desert and then arriving at San Diego made San Diego so much sweeter. See, sometimes God empties us so that he and he alone can satisfy us, but so that the experience of God that we have on the other side is so much sweeter. And that's why we need to begin by going up. We need to remember that when we're empty, we start the project by going up because empty is as empty does. So go up, point number one. Point number two is go back, go back. Let me read verse two. So I have looked upon you. This is David reflecting back. I've looked upon you in the sanctuary. He's saying, I remember that. Beholding your power and glory, your steadfast love, is better than life. My lips will praise you. I will bless you as long as I live in your name. I will lift up my hands. So David begins this kind of mental exercise of reflecting back, recalling these times in God when he was satisfied in God. He's he's thinking back to being among the people. He's thinking back to going to church. This great church he was involved in, this wonderful people that he worshipped with. And he's saying, I remember this time when my desires were filled, when I experienced the power of God and the glory of God in the sanctuary. I remember encountering the love of God, verse 3, the love of God, which was better than life. He says in verse 6, we didn't read this, but he said in verse 6, he speaks of remembering God on his bed, meditating back on the on the faithfulness of God, the seasons of his life where God was evidently faithful to him. In verse 7, he thinks back upon times when God had been his help. Here's the point David's trying to make. In this season, his soul may have felt empty, but his mind was full. And his mind was being filled with memories of the times where God was rich and he was full and he was satisfied. And he's intentionally remembering those times. Now, remember the point that I'm trying to make, the overarching point of the whole message is empty is as empty does. So David here may feel empty, but, but here's the thing. He decides to respond to empty the way he lived when he was satisfied. In other words, he's not going to respond to empty with emptiness He's going back to a season when he was satisfied. He's remembering all the forms and all the things that were in his life back then. And he's importing them into this season. He says, so I will praise you. This is the things he's saying he will do. He says, I will praise you. I will lift up my hands to you. My soul will be satisfied. My lips will praise you. I will sing for joy. There's a lot of wills in there. See, going back takes him back to the things that he remembers about God, God's love for him, God's faithfulness, God's love. In verse three, your steadfast love is better, better than life. God's faithfulness to him over the years. It's like it's like the engines of the engine of his desires just won't turn over. You know, he's in one of those seasons, and you can relate to that. You're one of those seasons where it doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter the steps that you try to take. The engine of desire just will not catch. It will not turn over. So David takes, takes the jumper cables, and he, apl- he, he affixes them to the past, and he gets a charge from the past into the present that then begins to generate and jump the heart. He takes, a, he takes the jumper cables. He puts them in the future which is what we do. We think about heaven. We think about our destiny. We think about where this whole project and where this whole program is leading. And then we hook up the jumper cables and we get the charge back into the present. That's what David is doing. So he goes back to the love of God, back to the faithfulness of God. And that triggers something within him. It triggers enough incentive within him, enough motivation that he begins to move towards God. He begins to declare, you are my God. I will worship you. I will lift my hands. I will praise you. I will sing with joy. Now, this is very important. I want you to listen carefully. David worships not because his emotions are full, but because he remembers that God is real. He worships not because he's feeling it emotionally in the moment, but because he remembers certain objective realities about God that inform his reality in the present and transform his perspective on God and what he's walking through. So going back helps him go up. Applying the second point helps him to apply the first point. Almost like he's saying, I may be empty, but remembering God will fill me. I may be empty, but remembering God's faithfulness will fill me. Now, there's also another paradox that kind of an apparent contradiction that kind of flows from this idea of going back that we've got to recognize about our desires for God. And that is that that satisfied desires in God actually kindle new desires for God. That there's a sense where in God we are never completely, never entirely satisfied in God. Think about this for a second, that the more of God one gets, the more hungry for God one is. Where we find satisfaction in God, but we also want more of God. That in God, our desires are both relieved and stirred. And, and you, might, you can think about this from a human per- I mean, you can think about this in your own life. I thought about it I thought about it all the way back in tenth grade, where I remember reading the Hobbit didn 't know Tolkien had written any other books, reading the Hobbit, and I was just consumed with this book, The Hobbit. I had back then a and i 'm really dating myself here a transistor radio that I had slid in my pocket, ran the cord up through my shirt, earpiece in sat in class, head tilted slightly to the right, so the earpiece couldn 't be seen. And I would just listen to what was going on in the radio, and I would read Tolkien. And I remember finishing The Hobbit, and I just thought, that was unbelievable. I wish there was more of that. So I read it. I was entirely satisfied. But my satisfaction only made me want more. And then I found out, oh, you mean there's three more of these things? That's unbelievable. I flunked algebra that, that year, reading Tolkien. Also, because I'm not very good at algebra, which is why I was reading Tolkien. The desires that were satisfied became desires that were ignited. And, you know, I mean, think about it this way. In terms of where we're all going, it's not like when we get to heaven, we become God. With all of our desires for God self-fulfilled. No. And it's not like when we get to heaven, we know God fully as God can be known. No. Heaven is going to be an experience of having desires inflamed, desires satisfied, desires expanded, because we are serving and loving and seeing and worshiping a God who is infinite. And because he is infinite, our exploration of desires ignited and desires satisfied will be infinite as well. But it starts here on this earth under the lordship of Jesus Christ. So is your soul unsatisfied this morning? Empty is as empty does. Go back. So go up, go back, and last point is go, go loud. Go loud. You know, Scripture reveals that David had many faults, but among them was not an absence of passion. And in fact, his response to being empty are not the vacant words of a burdened soul that just couldn't manufacture any good thoughts about God. But it actually, on the contrary, seems like this this whole-bodied, wholehearted response to the truth of what he remembered about God. I mean, look again at the physical responses that David had. Because of your steadfast love, verse 3, my lips will praise you. Verse 4, I will lift up my hands. Verse 5, my mouth will praise you. Verse 6, I will meditate on you in the watches of the night. Verse 7, I will sing for joy. It just goes on and on and on. See, for David, feeling empty called for, you know, I used the word earlier, paradox. This, this idea that, you know, it, it appears one way, but it's another way. It appears like a contradiction, but it's really not. After going up, after going back, David then responds, even though he doesn't necessarily feel differently, but he responds with truth-based affections for God. In other words, he got loud. David got loud. His situation didn't call for loud. When you're in the desert and you're loud, that means you have a demon in you. When you're in the desert and you're loud, that means you're nuts. But David got loud in the desert. You say, well, well, why did he do that? Well, Okay, well, I want to get you thinking about this in a different way here. Uh, Wesley once said something. He, He once said, quote, preach faith until you have it, and then preach faith because you have it. Preach faith until and then preach faith because. There's a sense where as you preach faith, you begin to inculcate faith, you begin to embody faith, and then you have it and you preach from it. David is taking a similar approach here. He says, I will praise God until I am filled, and then I will praise God because I am filled. And I'm going to do it loudly. I'm going to do it with my whole body. I'm not just going to whisper the words. I'm going to shout. I'm going to sing. I'm going to lift my hands. I'm going to praise with my lips. I'm going to do this with my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And, you know, even as we begin to float these ideas out, there are certain quarters of the evangelical world that, well, there's, a, there's an odd kind of, I don't know, it's like a, It's like a sanitizing practice in the church today that that kind of distills Christianity down to truth without response, truth without affections. There's a kind of cerebral, you know, a scholastic, um, a, a kind of emotional cessationism where, you know, well, yeah, certainly emotions are in Scripture. Yeah, I see. We're supposed to lift our hands. We're supposed to worship, praise God, get excited. But all that ended with when the Scriptures were were made, Scriptures. All of that ended when the apostles died. And so what we're left is more just this, this, this cognitive ascendance to truth that doesn't elicit anything from us. And I think we probably see that for what it is, but what happens is it causes us to view affections for God. Affections would mean not only a mental response to the truth of God, but, an, but a whole body response to the truth of God. It tends, us to rend, it, it tends to render those affections with suspicion in our mind or even with fear. But I want you to know something. The more that we encourage our own souls and the more that we encourage other people to sing loud, lift hands, express joy, the more we get closer to the pattern of response in Scripture. And in fact, the more we get closer to the pattern of response throughout history as well. I brought a couple of quotes with me. Uh, listen to a couple of these theological giants. John Owen said, quote, the first, prior, the first priority of the Christian should begin with his affections. Jonathan Edwards said, "Quote: Scripture places religion in the affections, the whole body, whole-hearted, whole-minded response to truth that should be the experience, and if not the experience, the obedience of the believer." See, let, let's just get this straight. This is not about David being like uh, artsy or exalting charismatic forms of expression and experience or his temperament. I'll, I'll tell you something else. You got to know me to know how odd it is that I would be making a case for affections. Because I have always envied people who for whom passion comes easy, because I'm not that way. I was raised Presbyterian. My family is part Dutch. My dad was a steelworker. His dad was a steelworker. His grandfather was a steelworker, as was his great-grandfather. It was not a weepy family. I mean, I think there was one time my father wept, 1960, bottom of the ninth, Bill Mazeroski stands up, knocks it out of the park. They win the World Series. It was a day where all steel workers wept. The guys in my neighborhood were not exploring their feelings. And when they did, they were using four-letter words to express them. See, I'm not emotional. I'm analytical. I'm not inclined to explore feelings. I, I just want to get things done. I grew up in a church where if people had their hands raised, there was a robbery taking place. (laughs) Because you just didn't do that in the Presbyterian world. But here's a reality that I had to come to grips with. When one reads Scripture, there's no doubt strong affections are there. And strong affections going loud is the claim that my master makes upon me. And he makes it upon me even when I'm empty. Why is that? Here's why. Because the heart of worship has never been to express present feeling. The heart of worship is res- to respond to past truth and a future destiny. It's never been about present. Re- if you reduce the experience of worship down to how I feel today, you'll never worship. Am I filled today? You'll never worship. Truth is the heart response to a reality that has been fixed in the past by the death and resurrection of the Savior. Truth is the response to the reality that where we're going, none of this mess is going to be here. And we are awaiting the Savior to come back and take us there or to die and get there. But that's our destiny. That's our destination. And therefore, we can worship from there as well. See, There's something about that that we have to understand where God has established a relationship with us. And that's what we worship out of. It's not a feeling. I mean, when when I see Kim at the end of the day, I don't say, well, I'm not going to show her love today because I'm not feeling the groove at the moment. No, God says thus, listen, let me liberate you from your false assumptions. It's not about type, it's not about temperament, it's not about personality profile. It's about a response to truth. It's about a relationship that we have where you worship me from it. It has truth imported into it, regardless of whether you feel the reality of that truth today or not. Because being in a relationship always calls for certain responses, going loud, always calls for certain responses, regardless of your daily temperature, your daily emotional temperature. You know, if, if you're here and you're married, you don't, you don't take your spouse out on a date and debate whether you should express affection for them. It's a way to shorten the date and to ensure that dates do not end in the married life the way they should. The marriage calls for affections. It's not, it's not like, oh, I'm not like that. It's not, well, I don't have that kind of personality. It's not why well, I wasn't really raised. It has nothing to do with that. The marriage calls for affections. The reality of what happened when you were united calls for affections. Jesus says, oh, i got a bigger relationship with you than that. In fact, that relationship with your spouse simply mirrors another reality of my love for the church. If you want to worship, worship out of the reality that that exists and that's going to determine where you go for eternity. Yeah, you know, sometimes we feel empty. We do. We do. But that doesn't make us less married, does it? That doesn't make Jesus less of our Savior. That doesn't empty the cross of its power for our life. We are passionate, not because of how we feel, but because of this relationship we have with Jesus, because of what he's accomplished for us on the cross. It's not because of how we're wired. It's because of what he's done. It's because of verse 3, his steadfast love is better than life. Now, I'm not in any way trying to be insensitive, like you're supposed to be merry, even though you got the phone call from from the doctor this past week. And he whispered those words, cancer. Or you're feeling the effect of some betrayal yourself, or you've failed your family in some way, or lost your job, or deep in debt, and you're, you're, j- you're just too empty. I, I get that. Believe me, I get that. The point that I'm trying to make is, empty is as empty does. It seems like David, David's approach goes something like this. I'm going to praise God until I am filled, and then I'm going to praise God because I'm filled. I'm going to praise God until I'm moved and then I'm going to praise God. Because I am moved. I'm going to praise God until I have feeling. And then I'm going to praise God because I have feeling I'm going to praise God until I am satisfied. And then I'm going to praise God because I am satisfied. So listen, if you're not satisfied this morning, or you're not passionate about being satisfied this morning. You're in the right place. You really are. You're among the right group of people. We can relate to that. But, but let us together draw near to God and ask him together to stir our affections and to satisfy our quest for satisfaction in him and him alone. And then help us to lift our voices with a new awareness that though we empty, the gospel is not empty. Though we feel an absence of the love of God, God loves us. And though we may feel like we love him, the reality is he loved us first. And that's worthy of a whole body, truth-based, affection-filled response the Savior. Let's pray.